So this morning we're going to be continuing our sermon series on the Lord's Prayer, and today our phrase will be, give us today our daily bread. So I'm going to ask you, if you're able, to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to warn you, it's going to be a long one, so if you need to take a rest in between, I won't be offended, but try to stay with me because this is very important, as the Word of God always is. Amen? Amen. All right. So we're going to start in Matthew 6, uh, and it'll be verses 9 to 13, this you're familiar with. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done with me on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's it. Okay, so, yeah, we're moving to John 6. You do not have to read this with me, sorry. This is very long, so I'll just read it for us. But tune in with me as as we go here. So this is John 6, verses 25 to 71. When they found him on the other side of the lake, like I said, it's long. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures for eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who has given you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who has sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this the Jews there began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man 
and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, who though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. This is the word of God. You can take your seats. Uh, let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, God, that every single word on the page in Scripture, every word that we hear read, is our daily bread. God, that you, you yourself, you sent your Son to nourish us, to fill us, to save us, and to bless others in this world. So, God, I just pray that this morning you would be made very clearly visible. God, Holy Spirit, do your work. Make our hearts fertile soil plant your seed and and give to each of us what we need to hear and give us collectively what we need to hear from you, Lord, this morning, so that we may be moved for the rest of this week to be your hands and feet and salt and light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. After the Korean War ended in 1953, South Korea was left with a large number of children who had been orphaned by the war. Relief agencies came in to deal with the problems that they rose in connection with having so many orphan children. One of the people involved in the relief effort talked about a problem that they encountered with the children who were in these orphanages. Even though the children had three meals provided for them every day, they were restless and anxious at night and had difficulty sleeping. And as they talked to the children, they soon discovered that the children had great anxiety about whether they would have food the next day. To help resolve this problem, the relief workers in one particular orphanage decided that each night when the kids were being put to bed, the nurses would place a single piece of bread in each of their hands. The bread wasn't intended to be eaten. It was simply intended to be held by the children as they slept. It was a security blanket for them, reminding them that there would be provision for their daily needs. Sure enough, it worked. The bread calmed the children's anxieties and helped them sleep. Give us today our daily bread. In this, our fourth sermon on the Lord's Prayer, we see that Jesus has set a model for us, for prayer, and and for every day when we talk about daily bread. We're to cling to God, 
for provision and sustenance. Most of us in this room, probably not dying of hunger or thirst. You might be hungry right now, but that's not the same thing, right? But we too, of course, are reliant on God for daily provision. We may not know it, we may not be aware of it all the time, but we are. And the audience for the Sermon on the Mount was the disciples, but there were also crowds of people who were listening in on this conversation. And perhaps some of them could have related more closely to what the children in the South Korean orphanages experienced. Give us today our daily bread may have been a familiar cry for some of them. For others in the crowd, maybe we can relate more to this, Jesus' message later in Matthew 6 of do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth would be more relevant. Because you see, Jesus had a word for the poor and for the rich alike. And do not store up more than you need because God will provide all that you need one day at a time. In these passages, Matthew and John wanted their readers to believe that Jesus is God's daily bread. The kind of belief that alters everything. He wanted them to feel it in their bones. Not just to believe it in their heads. Say, oh yeah, that's good. No, 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 no. It's supposed to alter everything. Nothing else is the same once you believe this. Nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else will last. Because we need Jesus every day. And I'm convinced that the reason we don't experience Jesus like this and rely on him daily and struggle in our prayer lives is because we don't receive our daily bread that God offers. But when we take Jesus at his word and feast on him daily, we will believe and live lives full of the Spirit. So this morning, we'll first unpack what Jesus means. What's he talking about when he calls himself the bread of life? Second, we'll see what it means to eat his flesh, and drink his blood. And finally, we'll discuss ways to feast on Jesus as our daily bread. It's too bad we don't have communion this week. This probably would have made sense had I thought about this in advance. <laughs> when Jesus says daily bread in, in these passages, his Jewish audience would have understood this fairly literally. Starting in John 6.30, Jesus expounds on Exodus 16.15 and Psalm 78.24, which I'm sure you have memorized, right? The Exodus passage is the first time God provides manna, which is translated as, what is it, for those who aren't familiar. So for the Israelites, they have no idea what this was. This is a new thing that God is doing. From biblical descriptions, manna is described as a fine, flake-like thing. And in the morning, what they would find is it sort of rests on the ground, like frost on the ground that you'd see in the winter. And you'd pick it up, and you'd collect it, and you'd pound it into cakes, and then you'd bake it. And scripture says it would taste like wafers made with honey. Sounds like a very simplistic thing. It sounds actually really delightful, doesn't it? It sounds like it'd be kind of nice. A little sprinkle of sweetness God there. Then the psalmist in Psalm 78 says, He rained down manna for the people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. The Israelites were out in the desert, and they started complaining because they had no food to eat. And God did this incredible thing. He rained food down for them. He could have done this in simpler ways, right? But he chose to rain food down for them, to manifest and show who he is in this way. And he sent it every single morning without fail. And he gave this simple instruction. Don't hoard this stuff. Don't keep it. I'll give you more the next day. Except for the day before Sabbath, where he gave two days' worth. And what would happen if they hoarded it? It rotted. They'd find it, it'd be maggot-ridden, maggot-ridden, it'd be disgusting. So I think the lesson here is fairly, fairly obvious. It's trust God to provide your daily food. Don't try to keep it, and don't try to take someone else's food. 
God provided just enough for everyone, which of course, if you're in an arid desert, is an abundance. So keep that in mind. In the Jewish teaching style of his day, Jesus explains what manna is. And like some other ancient teachers of his time, Jesus often taught in really hard to understand ways. He would do this on purpose. One reason maybe he did this is to separate those who are genuine followers from, from everyone else, from the masses. Because right before this account in John, and I didn't read this to you because I wanted to spare your legs, is Jesus fed the 5,000 plus women and children. So there were thousands of people gathered around. And you probably are familiar with the story. He fed them all using basically like one person's worth of lunch. And scripture says that after he did this, they were ready to crown him king. When they heard, so that night Jesus then crosses the lake because he's trying to avoid all this attention. And when the crowds then found out that he had crossed the lake, many of them followed him over, and they crossed the lake to to find where he was, to hear more from what he had to say. Because these folks were hungry for a revolution. They were ready for a king to come and save Israel. But instead of wooing the crowd, what Jesus does is he sharpens his teaching. It makes it even harder to follow him. Many Jews wanted to hear Jesus proclaim himself as a political messiah who would overthrow their Roman oppressor. And some believed, actually, at that time, that when God's kingdom came, manna would reign again. And frankly, it's kind of hard to blame them, considering Jesus just brought bread out of nothing, right? He just multiplied all this bread, so they're like, yeah, he's here, this is it. And it's a pretty, it's, this feels like a pretty normal reaction to have, right? If you, if you're, if you have Old Testament in the back of your mind. And this is why they say, always give us this bread, But of course, Jesus shatters their dreams and their expectations because he's much more than a full stomach. He's much more than tangible bread that we eat. When Jesus calls himself the bread of life, he's saying that he is manna. He's God's daily portion for his people. And how do we know this? In John 6, 35 to 40, Jesus says, those who come to him and believe in him will never go hungry and never be thirsty. He's come down from heaven, like manna, to do the Father's will. Manna in the desert foreshadowed the coming of the bread of life. And on our side of Jesus' first coming, we participate in communion to remember the bread of life. I'm going to talk a little bit more about communion in a moment. But before we get there, I think it's helpful to see what Jesus specifically points out as contenders for daily bread. In other words, the things that we try to replace God's daily breath, bread with. In other parts of the Sermon on the Mount, which apparently was, was homework, I didn't know this, I wasn't in church last Sunday, uh, calling myself out, but if you had read the Sermon on the Mount like Pastor David evidently gave us his homework, then you, you'll maybe remember these passages. In Matthew 6.24, God, or Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money. Money is a huge contender for daily bread. And I think in, the day, in this context, I wonder if loving money is that sinful desire that most of us experience for wanting more than our daily bread. We want tomorrow's bread. We want the day's bread after that. We want it all at once, all right now. Because I don't want to depend on God's provision on a daily basis. It's uncomfortable. It's difficult. It's hard to live that way. But what happens is as as we hoard, as we start trying to get more and more, it actually becomes easier to start taking bread from other people. Start taking their daily bread because I I need it. I need it. We've seen this pattern now throughout human history, right? I think examples will jump to mind very quickly. A group of people want to take another group's stuff. 
So they rationalize that. Well, they don't deserve it. They're not using it well. What, are, what do we need a rainforest for, right? Let's just take stuff from it and whatever. You know, or, you know, they're not actually human, so we're going to rationalize all these things and make it seem like they're less than human, so it's easier for us to just to take their stuff. And oftentimes, Scripture is twisted to rationalize this racism and this sexism and this pillaging of God's creation. We hoard our manna, and it rots us. In Luke 12, a man comes up to Jesus and demands that Jesus tell his brother to divide his inheritance with him. Jesus replies, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he says to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. First of all, I love Jesus' response here because I can imagine him kind of saying this to me when I'm praying about like ridiculous things. Like, oh gosh, this again, right? But I also think it's important to note that Jesus is pointing here because the impulse to build our own kingdoms and to seek security is really powerful. And there is a false comfort that gets built up in a padded savings account or in a retirement plan. It's not to say we shouldn't have those things. However, it's pretty clear that Jesus is warning us that a life spent accumulating is not rich toward God. And inevitably, our hoarding leads to stealing money and stealing bread, stealing resources, likely from those who have the least. If any of you have read any uh, number of Michael Lewis's books on the financial industry, anyone read any of these? Am I the only one? Really? It's like a best-selling author. Okay, well, read some of his books. They're really good. You've probably seen the movies, like The Big Short, Moneyball. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> re- <laughs> yeah, yeah. Re- the movies are fine. The books are better. So, so, <laughs> so, so read them. They're good. Now, why I'm bringing this up is because his books have shown me endlessly that greed knows no bounds and is extremely cl- creative and clever. Greed gives many financial institutions the cleverness to create things like subprime mortgages and, and these like, things that we don't quite understand. And then they boost up the economy, and then what happens when the thing collapses because it has no legs? Homes get taken from the working poor. And then what happens? They receive government bailouts. They get saved. And then they do it all over again. They find some other way to start stealing money and stealing things from the working poor and the middle class. Now you want to read these books, right? Yeah? All right. Well, I have some if you want to borrow them. (laughs) Greed also entices some colleges and universities to start pushing students to take on excessive financial loans. It cannot possibly pay back, and sometimes these places are offering degrees of pretty questionable value. This is what greed does. Because once people are viewed as commodities to extract value from, it's pretty easy to just start taking their things and treating them like ways to pad your bank account. Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses anxiety and worry. Who can, who can relate to these? He says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothes. For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This has been a verse that I've wrestled with throughout my life, I would say. 
I think I've landed on this word from Jesus is actually fairly impractical, but it's a good word. We all have responsibilities and people depending on us, don't we? So how can we be expected to focus on his kingdom first? It seems like a really hard thing. I think it's a fair question to wrestle with, but what I believe God, Jesus, is saying here is to trust him. Okay, I think that's at the core of this. Where in your life, or in your community's life, your family's, or our church's life, have we started relying on ourselves a little, a little too much? For example, we have a, we're, we're searching for a, a building, right, right now? It's been kind of a long time coming, if you ask some of us, right? <laughs> and it would be mighty tempting at this stage to just start looking with our eyes, right? What looks good? What do we think would fit our needs? Which neighborhood? Which corner? And it would get really easy to lose sight of what God has in mind for us. And this is why we're doing this from a prayer-centered approach. And this is why prayer in general is so important. When money and anxiety and other means of self-reliance are creeping in, prayer brings us back to God's heart. Repentance brings us back to relying on God's provision and not on our own. So me, I'm repenting of my self-reliance. I'm repenting of my lack of faith. I'm repenting of when I partake and benefit from systems of corruption that do exploit and take things from my fellow image bearers. What do you need to repent of today? What is Jesus asking you to release? Maybe a good litmus test for this is what keeps you up at night? What are your worries? Jesus asks us and says to us to lay them at his feet. And it's not easy, but he gives us the strength to do it. Okay, now we know money, love of money, anxiety about provisions. This is not what Jesus is talking about here when he talks about daily bread. So what is he saying? What does Jesus mean when he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood? He's speaking in riddles. But his language actually has biblical precedent, as what Jesus says often does. The the sacrificial lamb had to be eaten as part of the Passover meal. And so when he says, this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world, Jesus is saying he is the true and final Passover lamb. We eat of his flesh when we believe in Jesus, do the will of the Father, as he did. Again, it's probable that Jesus is using riddles and confusing language to start separating out the true followers from, from the pretenders. John 6.66 says, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. But I don't think these were casual decisions. I think it's easy for us to dismiss and say, oh, well, they couldn't handle it or they couldn't take it. They crossed the lake. That's probably more than I would have done, honestly. They, it wasn't easy to get around. They had, like, motorboats or anything. They had to, like, you know, or whatever, however they had to do it, right? Like, it took effort for them to get across. And some of them had probably been following him for a while, right? Some of them following for some length of time, going through pretty great inconvenience, missing work, which was their livelihood. And yet it is this teaching that causes many of them to leave. So why is that? Why is it that when he calls himself the bread of life, it is so incredibly off-putting? It's because Jesus is talking about being from heaven. As Christians today, we believe Jesus is the Son of God. Right? Amen? Amen. But I think we sometimes forget how weird that is. It's like a very strange thing to believe. And back then, in Jewish culture, it was the highest level of sin to blaspheme, which is how they were hearing this. To say your God was a crucifiable offense, as we plainly see. It's lunacy to say that unless it's true. Unless it's true. Unless he is the Son of God. But it would take tremendous faith to believe that. 
In fact, as Jesus says, the Father has enabled those who would believe to have faith. So while many walked away, some others, they pressed in. They wanted to hear more. What is he saying? There's something there. They understood that God was at work. And they saw beneath the surface. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. What separates Peter and the other disciples from those who walked away is they knew Jesus. They spent time with him. He was already their daily bread in many ways. They lived with him. They knew the life behind the words. The crowds were willing to cross the sea to get to Jesus, but most of them couldn't go any farther than that because they could not accept his hard teaching because it didn't fit with their worldview, expectations, or hopes of what they wanted out of him. But the disciples knew him. They knew Jesus. And sure, he was confusing and offensive at times, but they experienced his love firsthand. They knew he practiced what he preached. They saw him at his best and at his worst. They probably heard him snoring. You know, the parts are like, oh. They laughed with him. They cried with him. They lived life with him, and that's what transformed them. They were the ones who who picked up the leftover bread after Jesus fed the 5,000. Can you imagine how crazy that would be? To not only have been there, but then to pick up the bread and the fish that was originally there. And that's actually the part that kind of gets me the most. It's a bit of a tangent, but I mean, there's more at the end than there was at the beginning, which seems obvious given that he fed so many people, but for some reason that part gets me. There's, there's more left. And then he says, after feeding them, Jesus instructs the disciples to pick up everything that's left and let nothing be wasted. I find this hilarious because he just produced the food out of nothing, right? And then, what what does it matter if it's wasted? Like, eh, whatever, just make more, right? But no, because nothing God creates is waste. I think this is such such a powerful little lesson he he teaches the disciples there because it would be very easy for them to just think, ah, well, you can do whatever he wants. Why, Why treat this as precious? So maybe there's a word in there for you too. So everything God made is sacred and should be stewarded well. Jesus is our daily bread. He provides what we need for that day. And even though God does provide an abundance, he also limits us to our daily portions. God doesn't give us too much to make us gluttons. He doesn't give us too little to string us along. Sometimes daily bread looks like the glory and victory of a mountaintop experience like the transfiguration. And sometimes it's just enough to weather the Garden of Gethsemane. We receive daily bread for resting on Sabbath and to sustain us when we're on strike. The disciples had the unique experience of physically being with Jesus, but as our bread of life too, he's also available to us as immediately and as tangibly. Do you believe that? As Christians, we've all experienced God working miracles in our lives and in the lives of our community members, family, and certainly in our church. Testimonies of God providing out of thin air, money that just shows up in the mail, a physical and psychological healing, a recovery from addiction, and of incomparable peace during times that there's no reason to have peace. God gives us great peace in trial. Or think about that person you thought was beyond saving, who one day you find out Jesus has turned their life around. And they seem to love God more than you these days, right? Eating and drinking from money and anxiety only produce more greed, more anxiety, and no peace. 
But there is a lot of truth in the disciples' response when they say, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? But it's Peter's response that reveals one who's journeyed with and follows Jesus. Lord, to whom shall we go? I got nowhere else to go. You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And that belief, friends, has legs and fuels a life filled with worship. In the Bible, the most common metaphor for worship is sacrifice. Paul teaches that we are living sacrifices, true worshipers. Of course, Jesus sacrificed himself. And when partaking at the communion table, where we eat the bread and drink the wine, the flesh and blood of Jesus, we also are declaring ourselves as sacrifices too. As Eugene Peterson says, we bring ourselves to that altar. Let God do with us what he will. Like the bread and wine, we too are taken, blessed, broken, and distributed in lives of witness and service, justice, and healing. So you see, once you eat the bread of life, you can't help but be transformed into a worshiper. You, just, you can't help it. But Jesus intentionally portions himself daily. Because just as we need to eat every day, we need Jesus every day. Because without scripture, prayer, Christian community, we starve as Christians. It may not be as obvious to you as when you're hungry, but it'll catch up to you quick. Because there's no discipleship without daily worship. There's no worship without sacrifice. And the greatest expression of sacrifice in worship is obedience to God's will. And in fact, we just sang it, right? You are my daily bread. You are my living will. Those things are they're, they're, they're together. So what does that mean? It means that God nourishes us with daily bread to be daily bread for others, for each other. If you hoard that bread like the Israelites tried to, then you will rot. Your spirituality will be without action. And you'll be judgmental. And you'll grow bitter. And you'll grow empty. If you do the opposite, if you try to be daily bread for others without being nourished in Jesus, you're going to spread yourself real thin. You're going to run out of steam. You're going to burn out. You're going to get bitter. See how bitterness really lives on both sides of this? This is why it's so common in the Bible. The Israelites grumbled in the desert. The Pharisees are grumbling here to Jesus. That's what will happen to us. We don't have both. So how does Jesus feed us daily bread? I would say sacred or spiritual rhythms are a really good starting point. If you're not familiar with these, um, they, they really help you, gives you some structure. Any, just out of curiosity, does anyone sort of follow like a spiritual rhythms, rhythm? Okay. Oh, don't be shy. It's a good thing. You don't have to be like, yeah, okay. So some of us, all right. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is, this is good. Keep doing that. Now, <laughs> I say this because there, there, there are tried and true methods that Christians have followed for centuries. I don't, frankly, I don't speak as one who's done this in the past. Um, I'm learning about this, these more and more, and so this is why I'm kind of talking about them, because I, I found them very helpful for my own life. I'm going to unpack what this means in a second. But these are, these are methods that Christians have used for a very long time now. I think these days we can get very separated or feel like we're having to figure out something new with our faith. A lot of times we're going to find really rich minds of depth and listening practices, listening to the Holy Spirit when we go back, when we, when we go back to how the saints have been faithful. So the idea here is that you're setting aside daily time and space, it's important, time and space, 
to listen to God, to be with him, to be filled, and to be discipled. And since we're talking about prayer in this series, I would say if you're doing any of these, keep doing them as far as prayer rhythms. If not, start doing some prayer rhythms by yourself with those in your community. Um, I actually, if you're, if you're in a community group or if you're in Thursday Night Bible Study, I shared resources with your leaders uh, that the, the, the nomination actually provided that I found very helpful. Um, they're like these little guides. It's super, they're really, really good. They're very easy to follow. Anyway, do those. Actually, some of the curriculum, you're sort of forced to do them if you're in a Bible study or if you're in a community group, so it's practice. The two I will just point out right now are Lectio Divina, which some of you are probably familiar with, and Prayer in Community. I think these can be particularly helpful in this season of prayer for our church. Because we can all benefit from guidance and structure, especially, I would say, if you're feeling a little stuck in your prayer lives. Um, As Pastor David emphasized last week, again, I wasn't here, but my wife told me, worship and prayer are inseparable. If you're like me, you may find sometimes you're stuck in prayer seasons where you're just praying by yourself a lot, kind of like self-centered prayers. These will actually kind of snap you out of that. They'll get you out of your own head. They actually, again, get you in sync with, with things that have been Prayers that have been prayed, methods that have been used for, for centuries by saints. So this is why I highly encourage it. If you're not part of regular Christian community, please join a community group or Thursday night Bible study. You've heard me say this up here from announcements, but please, please consider it if you're not part of one. As timing would have it, we are starting a new community group on Monday nights at Pete and Nikki's home. It's going to be awesome, but it's something new, right? So if you're, you're a little worried about joining something that is kind of like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to know people, this is new. This is not started yet. This is new. So if you're interested, find me after service, talk to Pete, talk to Nikki, sign up on the community group sheet on the orange table. Just do it, especially in this season. I promise you it'll be really, really good. I promise you it'll be really good. Another practice I would say that I, I, I frankly dislike but is really good is fasting. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. But fasting is powerful. It's a powerful practice, especially when you do it with others. Uh, it doesn't just have to be from food. It can be from other things that are serving as distractions. Maybe start with those and then move on to food if that's really hard for you. Sabbath is an absolute must. It is literally a commandment. So please, please commit to observing Sabbath, maintaining your Sabbath practices. Um, scripture, regular reflection, examines. These give space for the Holy Spirit to restore us and to show us, again, getting us out of our heads, of just our daily lives. But then God shows us not only how he's moving in our lives, but also what he's doing in the world. And then he'll invite you to join him in what he's doing. I emphasize these rhythms because they give us structure and regular pauses in which to, to listen to God. And if these are new for you, don't be surprised if it takes some doing. It's going to take a little while to get in the habit of doing these. It's going to feel like nothing's happening for a while, to be honest. But we have to learn to listen to God and shut off the noise. We're so inundated with noise these days. It's really hard to shake out of that without doing something different for a long time. So I encourage you to stay with it. And over time, I promise you, God will break through in really, really incredible ways. And you'll have awesome testimonies to share about sacred rhythms with other people. So how do we become daily bread for others? You live sacrificially for your brothers and sisters out of the power of the Holy Spirit that God pours into you through Jesus, the word of God. The sacred rhythms are not important for ritual's sake. This is important. It's It's not just to do it. 
but it's because it facilitates space and time for us to commune with the Holy Spirit. And the sacrificial part of this for some of us might be just simply carving out time and space. Some of us have time, but no space. Our minds are just constantly going. We're never quieted. Others of us, pretty good at decluttering our minds, but we have no time. We need both. And if you're finding that you don't have margin or you're not prioritizing margin in this season, consider that your discipleship may be suffering pretty significantly. And so, because of that, we need each other, don't we? None of us can lead a spirit-filled life on our own. We need accountability. We need to practice these sacred rhythms together. Like I've already talked about community groups and Bible study. By now, you know, these are the places to go. But also, I would say join a ministry team. Prioritize time and relationships with your brothers and sisters because those things are really important. We only sort of force you to come here on Sundays. Everything else is sort of up to you, right? So these are the times to, to force yourself to go. Jesus is the bread of life. This is a hard teaching because it means that none of us can sustain ourselves. And this is a hard truth for some of us who've been taught to, to rely on yourself, you know, real pick yourself up by the bootstraps kind of folks. But none of us can fix that person, that situation, cure that addiction, heal that person, or repair oppressive systems like CPS on our own. All we need to do is feast on Jesus daily. That's hard enough, isn't it? But he gives us all that we need to live in obedience to the Father's will. Then, then we will be faithful. Then we'll be faithful over the long haul as healers, as shepherds, as advocates for justice. And as we align with the Father's will, we'll find that our concern actually becomes less about that answered prayer than it does about communing with the Spirit in prayer. And in short, what will happen is we'll become worshipers who live in the Father's will, who then show this world more of God's kingdom. As our bread of life, Jesus is broken and distributed to nourish our bodies and spirits. We feast on Jesus daily to nourish this world that both is starving for real bread and is also trying to feast on greed and anxiety. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for being our bread of our daily bread, our bread of life. We thank you that you rain bread down on complainers and grumblers alike. We thank you, God, that it pleases you to take care of your people. I pray for our hearts to be good soil, that the Holy Spirit will convict us this week, this day, to set aside time and space for prayer, scripture, for listening to you. Renew our commitments, Lord, to each other in community groups, in Bible study, and in sincere and sacrificial Christian fellowship. Nourish us, Lord, with the, day, with, with the bread of life, so that every day we may be daily bread for this starving world, that it would come to know your love, your mercy, your justice. We commit all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.